0: Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet, and both thirsts would be slaked. All right, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Lord God, I give you thanks and praise for the gift of this day, for the gift of this uh, this particular group of educators and formators, people, Lord, who you knew uh, from the beginning of time that we would be here together today. This is not an accident. We are here by your, in, your initiative. Lord, we ask you to send forth your Holy Spirit upon us, that spirit that poured forth from the side of Christ that gives birth to all new things. We ask, Lord, for the docility of mind and the openness of heart to receive the particular gift and graces that you want to give us today. And through the intercession of St. John Paul II and St. John Vianney, we place ourselves before you, Mary, our Queen, our Mother, the star of the new evangelization, the archetype of humanity, our perfect yes to God. As we pray together, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, I pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. John Paul II, Pray for us. Mary, our mother, Pray for us. in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. My, uh, Did you tell them who I am and like how any of those things? No, actually, that. Okay, so uh, my name is Father Patrick Schultz. Um, I was ordained in 2016, did my first assignment at uh, Communion of Saints in Cleveland Heights. Now I'm at Sacred Heart of Jesus in Wadsworth. Um, and today is actually the one-year anniversary of me starting that assignment, so... That's kinda of cool. Oh thanks. Hold the applause. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um so I've known uh the Jens uh for a long, long time. Jen Martin and I were in this the first retreat I ever did, we were in the same small group. I was a junior, she was a freshman. Um and then uh Jen Ricard I've known yeah, pretty much the same time since I was since I was in high school. So Yeah. So she she Jen Ricard was my first theology of the body teacher. She was the first one who really like introduced me to this stuff, and um, it's just been awesome to do ministry with you over the over the years. So, so we're looking today at uh, this second session. Uh, Christ appeals to the human heart. So in your workbook, that's uh, that starts on page eight. Um, there's a lot that we got to cover here, um, and uh, part of this is the bad news. Part of this is the good news. This this section that we're dealing with here. So this, I want to get get our attention here on this chart again. Um, this is this is going to be one of your best friends when it comes to teaching this stuff. I don't care if you're teaching it to to little kids or college, or high school kids, even college kids. We all need a really good visual to kind of help understand the big picture. This is the big picture of um, the the anthropology, right? Theology of the body provides us in many ways an adequate anthropology, answering the questions of where do we come from, where are we going, how do we get there, what does it mean to be human, why do we have bodies, right, male, female, sex difference, all those things. Um, So again, like, we come from a God who is Trinity, a God who is love, this external exchange of life and love, and pouring out of God comes all of being, all of creation, right, sun, moon, stars, planets, blue whales, grape jelly, all the things, and at the culmination of this um, is the human person, right, man and woman, and the crown jewel of that creation is woman in particular, right? Because uh, if we remember, Adam, what is Adam made from? I know you just learned it. What is Adam made from? Dirt. The dirt, right? His name literally means dirt man, Adama. Dirt man, dirt creature. Uh, and Eve, what is Eve made from? from? Eve is made from Adam, right? Eve is made from Adam. She's made from someone who already, she's made from stuff that already contains within itself an even higher degree of perfection, Right. That's why Eve is the crown jewel of creation. Creation is on the way up, and woman is the crown jewel of creation. So, all right, so God made us in his image and likeness, right, male and female, in order to become a visual, physical icon, if you will, of who God is, right? God who is this eternal exchange of life and love. We call that Trinity, right? Eternal exchange of life and love. And in order for that God to be made visible in creation... He had to make a physical representation of that communion of life and love, giving and receiving, and that shows up in the physical creation as masculinity and femininity, right? So he made us masculine and feminine in order to be a sign, an image, an icon of who God is, right? But even more than that, he made our masculinity, our femininity, our maleness, femaleness, he made marriage and sexuality and spousal love, this horizontal communion to be a sign, of the vertical communion. That God, the kind of relationship He wants with us is not just mere friendship. He's not, he's not content just to be like buddies with you. <laughs> like Heaven is not going to be you and buddy Jesus hanging out for all eternity. Heaven is being united, taken up into the very heart of the Trinity. It's, the, it's saying yes to the invitation to the marriage of the Supper and the, of the Lamb where you are not the guest, you are the bride. Right? Dudes included. We'll get to that. But, like, I know, it's kind, of, it's kind of a confusing thing, right? No, you don't have to wear a dress. That's good news, right? I don't look good in white. That's where priests wear black. Okay, so anyway. Um, so this, this horizontal union and communion is a sign of this union and communion, right? All right, so things were great for... Let's take a look at this. Okay, so here, here's my Bible. Here's Genesis. All right, Genesis. We've got Genesis 1. Genesis 2. And then everything goes to crap. After one page. (laughs) Like we made it one page. Right? Ah! So close. Right? Alright, so so this is where we have the fall. Right? The fall, we're going to get into this. But the fall is rupture of relationship, rupture of communion. This rupture that happens on all levels. So this is what we're looking at. Right? Original sin, the fall. And this ushers us into the second stage of humanity. The second part of the triptych. Right. This is the triptych, tri meaning three, right? The <clears throat> historical man, this is where man is fallen yet redeemed. Say that with me, fallen yet fallen redeemed. redeemed. One more time. Fallen, yet, fallen redeemed. yet redeemed. Fallen yet redeemed. Look in your workbook here at uh, uh, quote number two. The heritage of our hearts is deeper than the sinfulness inherited. I want you to underline that. The heritage of our hearts is deeper than the sinfulness inherited. Christ's words reactivate that deepest inheritance and give it real power in human life. The heritage of our hearts is deeper. It is deeper. There is a story that's deeper. In other words, like the story of humanity doesn't begin with the fall. The story of humanity predates the fall. There's Genesis 1 and 2. If you don't have Genesis 1 and 2, it's all dismal. It's all awful. Here's the problem with modern man and modern sociology, modern like political theory, all of those things. They begin with the fall. There's no conception of the original plan, the original man, the original way that God intended things. So sociologists, their starting point is the fall, and they work their way forward. But that's not the deepest starting point. There is a deeper heritage Than the fall. So Christ's words here that we're going to be diving into, and John Paul II's teaching in this next section, they are they are not a condemnation. This is very important. Christ's words here are not a condemnation, uh, but they're an invitation to be truly transformed and restored to the purity of our origins. Right. So there's no getting back to the garden. Right. There's no getting back to the garden. But what if like. The one who is the author of the garden could come in and recultivate our souls to re-edonize our hearts. That's what redemption is. God is redeeming, regaining the original plan. He's getting us back to the purity of our origins. The point in this whole section is that transformation is possible. Like, redemption is possible. We are really capable of becoming more than what we are, which is also why we love all these Marvel movies, all these superhero movies, right? We love the idea of becoming more than what we are, right? I love this in the school I teach in, right? All the schools I've been to, the, um, our hearts know this, right? Little kids, I would say up to about fourth grade-ish, think about Halloween at the school. What do little boys and girls dress up as? K through four, K through three. Teachers, tell me. Superheroes. superheroes. What else? Princesses. 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 What else? Firefighters. Firefighters. What else? Okay, so then, let's think from fifth grade and up. Do you see a lot of superheroes anymore? <laughs> see a lot of capes? No, yeah, you see like really weird, it. ironic things. You like, you like, you're a banana for Halloween. Like. <laughs> <laughs> There's something that happens in the heart that says, like, like there's so, this, like, original memory that I meant, I meant to be a super person, right? More than merely human, right? And then the culture, world, original sin, all this garbage just begins to shut down that part of the heart and says, no, don't dream that big, just be like a milk carton for Halloween. That's <laughs> dream it big, right? <laughs> right? Chocolate milk at least, please, my God. Okay, so... All right, so transformation is possible. Transformation is possible. Uh, Look at the uh, quote number one. Again, this is John Paul II. He says, Whoever allows these words to act in him will hear in his innermost being the echo, as it were, of that beginning, of that good beginning to which Christ appealed on another occasion. We're going to get to that other occasion here in a second. I love John Paul II's words here that this... It's like our hearts have this ancient memory, if you will, of how things were supposed to be. And we experience it as an echo. Like seeing kids dressed up as superheroes, that's part of that echo. There's this echo, I'm made for something more. Most often in this fallen world, we experience it as the negation, right? Like this is not how things are supposed to be. This is not how it's supposed to be. Like when I see... like. Like, the intense suffering in family life. Marriage is breaking apart. People suffering tremendously. Just the anguish of anxiety and depression and emotional pain. This is not how it's supposed to be. Seeing the, the, the addictions that are ripping our culture and families apart. It's not how it's supposed to be. I remember having conversations with kids from Communion of Saints. Um, one girl in particular, when I was teaching her class, Theology of the Body, going through, like, Christ's words about marriage that, like... Christ really meant it that when uh, when a man and woman come together like they're meant to be together like forever like God did not intend divorce. And I remember saying to the class that like look if your parents are divorced or if you know people who are divorced the entire culture has been saying to you like you are wrong to think that it wasn't supposed to be this way. Like you just got to get over it. And I had this conversation with this one girl. She just like crying in my office saying, no one's ever given me permission to be mad about it. Like, I hate having two Christmases. I hate having two birthdays. She said, I hate my, my half siblings. I'm not supposed to hate them, but I hate them. She's like, I hate that my dad replaced me with this other, this other daughter. Like her heart knew something that she wasn't allowed to know. There's this echo in our hearts that it wasn't supposed to be, be this way. I was made for so much more. I was made for so much more. Look at quote number three there. Christian ethos, I'm going to talk about that, is characterized by a transformation of the human person's conscience and attitudes, such as to express and realize the value of the body and sex according to the creator's original plan. So in other words, what John Paul II is saying here is that like what, what we're talking about is real transformation, that to be a Christian is not to be someone simply bound by external norms, rules, regulations, that that the, there's a difference between ethos and ethic. Ethics are specific laws or norms or prescriptions. Ethos is the the way of being. Like the Christian way of being is a way of being that is permeated by the power of the Holy Spirit and grace such that Our whole, like, attitudes, our way of seeing and relating in the world, the way of talking to other people, the way of experiencing our own bodies and other bodies, everybody, right? Is truly how God intended it to be. Like, Christian transformation is possible. It's possible, it's possible. All right. Like, God makes it really possible to live according to the plan that he had for us. So the words of Christ that have us looking here at our fallen nature and the call to redemption come from Matthew's gospel so if, if you want to bring out your bible so there's no protestants in our midst today okay just kidding all right so they're they're right here at the top okay by the way next time you do anything like this like bring your bible okay bring your bible theology of the body if it's anything it's a bible study and this is our book as catholics amen okay all right so we got to know our Bible a little bit better. So uh, Matthew chapter 5. Anybody off the top of your head know what's going on in Matthew chapter 5? Come on, Catholics. I believe in you. Brad? Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, which occur in what context, Father Ed? Sermon on the, Mount. the Sermon on the Mount. He gets the gold star. You get a half gold star, Brad. Okay. <laughs> All right. So here we have Jesus saying, let me just read this from Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said... You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Then he goes on, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Okay. Okay. So here Jesus is giving some intense words, right? This is intense. If you don't feel the intensity, you're not listening. This is intense, right? Whoever looks at a woman or whoever looks at a man, vice versa, lustfully has already committed adultery with her, adultery with him in his heart. The heart is the battleground, right? The heart is the arena. The heart is where the battle is being fought. God and the enemy are vying for your heart. They're vying for your heart. Christopher West has this great quote here. If you look at the top of the page, Christ's words, again, are not so much a condemnation of the human heart, but a calling. Jesus' words in this section are an invitation to put out into the deep, to be truly transformed. But you have to engage the battle, and the battle is fought in the heart. The enemy has been after the heart from the very beginning. So what I want to do is I want us to go back to that beginning where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he's talking to the scribes, and they're asking him this question about divorce. Remember, Jen was just talking about this. Moses allowed us to divorce our wives. What do you say? And he said, Moses allowed you to write bills of divorce to separate yourselves from your wives because of the hardness serious? of your hearts. And he says, but in the beginning, it was not so. In the beginning, it was not so. So Jesus is like, think back to that triptych, right? Jesus has in mind, not a historical man, Hardness of hearts. Jesus has in mind original man. In the beginning, it was not so. All right, so when you think about the fall, when you think about original sin, um, when you think about the way you teach this, like from your Catholic upbringing. um, Anybody afraid of snakes? Oh, wait, hang on, where'd it go? Oh, I got another picture. There we go. That makes always people nervous who don't like snakes. All right, so when you think about the fall, when you think about the way you learned about original sin. What are just some of the things you learned about? What is, what is original sin? Or the way you explain it to your students. Original sin is, fill in the blank, teachers. It's something you're born with. Something you're born with, good. What else? Yes? Something that I like to bring up with them is they assume that
1: it's all Eve's fault. What I like <laughs> to bring up, well, Adam it was. It
0: was the woman! Yeah. Good, okay. Yeah, it was a shared fault. Right, good. What else? Yes, please. Why we live in our world today and how it is today. Yeah, good. Good, good, good. All the way in the back, please. Separation from God. Separation from God. Excellent. Great. Yeah, I, I, my, when I was first starting to study Theology of the Body, what always kept coming to mind, so I dropped out of PSR after second grade, so I'm a PSR dropout. Um, <laughs> didn't go to Catholic school, but still made it as a priest, you know? So that's pretty great. But um, I remember... Those PSR like workbooks and just the cartoon pictures of the garden, cartoon picture of this talking snake, and like, here's an apple, right? And, um, and like, all the bushes are always like perfectly placed over their bodies, you know? Like, like that's just so convenient, right? But modest shrubs in Eden. So, um, all right, so all that to say that the, the fall, so often in our Christian imagination, um, is characterized by a sort of childishness, if I can put it that way, um, and often probably in a lot of your students' minds, it's, they retain this sort of image of the cartoon snake, the cartoon Adam, the cartoon Eve, um, and it's kind of like, really? Like, a talking snake and a fruit you're not allowed to eat and, like, it ruined everything? Really? Like, there's so much more to this story. There's so much depth there, um, and John Paul II's Theology of the Body helps us to understand the fall, especially in relational terms, right? In relational terms. i want to read this. This is from the Catechism. Uh, we hear this, that man, tempted by the devil, let his trust in his creator die in his heart, and abusing his freedom, disobeyed God's command. This is what man's first sin consisted of. All subsequent sin would be disobedience toward God, and lack of trust in his goodness. You write down that paragraph, uh, Catechism 397. Super important. What the Catechism, what the church is teaching us, that original sin was not just simply God said, don't do that, and we're like, I'm going to do it, right? Like, that's not simply what it was. It wasn't just simply the violation of a positive command. Original sin was the rupture of relationship, that the posture of trust of openness, of complete receptivity before God was broken because man like filled with fear, we're going to get to this, man filled with fear said, I don't think I can trust you anymore. Right? Original sin is a rupture of relationship. It's a rupture of relationship. So I want to look at the, uh, the actual text from Genesis and get into this a little bit more. All right, so we have this. Now the serpent was more was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Did did God say that? Anybody know that last part? Did God say anything about touching the tree? Uh-huh. No, Right? So we got this like, this slight twisting. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will not die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Question. Who in this story is already like God? Adam and Eve, right? Let us make them in our image after our likeness, right? They're already in the image and likeness of God, right? So what's going on here? That the enemy slithering into this story, he is approaching Eve not because she's the weak one, he's approaching Eve because she's the receptive one. She is the one who represents all of humanity in her femininity. So he comes to Eve and he casts a suspicion over God, right? He gets her to begin to question her trust in God, exactly. Maybe he's not who I think he is. Maybe he's not a good father. Maybe he doesn't want my, my good. Maybe he doesn't have my best interests in mind. I don't know if I can actually trust him. Maybe he's withholding something from me that actually will make my life more full, more rich, more human. This thing called the fruit, right? And out of this fear, out of this like, this new vision of who God is, she suddenly sees God as a rival not as good and trustworthy, but as a rival, as a competitor, as someone not trustworthy, and she grasps, she grasps. You good? Okay. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. Oh, why why is my neck so sore? All right. So what God originally intended for us in the garden, what he originally intended for us in that beginning, was this posture of openness and trust. That God made us to be the beneficiaries of this infinite flood of mercy, goodness, beauty, tenderness, kindness, glory. All we were asked to do was stand in a posture of openness and trust. Openness and trust. To receive it. To receive it that is, my friends, like the definition of faith, the openness of the human person to the gift of God, the openness to the gift. And when we deny the gift of God, when we deny it, when we like close in on it, we lose our ability to be a gift to one another, right? We're meant to stand in this posture of openness before the gift to receive, 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 so that we can also give to be a gift to others, right? This is this is the posture. Like the Did you feel that right there? Right there. Like this is the corrective. This is the posture of the human heart properly ordered before God. Because before the ancient of days, we are all God's babies. We are all God's little ones. All he wants to do is pour goodness, beauty, glory, mercy, kindness, tenderness into us. Original sin was the enemy's preemptive strike against our hearts to say, you cannot trust that. Close yourself off. You cannot trust that. If you look at, um, on page nine, under original shame, quote number one, John Paul II here, he says, this is truly the key for interpreting reality. Original Original sin attempts to abolish fatherhood original sin attempts to abolish fatherhood like the enemy wanted to convince us you cannot trust him he's not good you know the song you're good good father you know that song the enemy wanted to kill that lyric in our hearts you cannot trust him you cannot trust him close yourself off protect yourself do not open to the gift Shut down, build walls, put on masks, keep, in, keep them at arm's distance. This is the sad world that we live in. This is, the, this is the syndrome, if you will, that Jesus has to come and confront and correct. This is the situation into which the word becomes flesh. He says, okay, humanity, I'm going to win your heart back. That's who our God is. That's what redemption is. So the enemy's been saying he's not good, he's not trustworthy. Look at quote number two right there. If original sin is the denial of the gift, faith, as I was saying, in its deepest essence is the openness of the human heart to the gift, to God's self-communication in the Holy Spirit. So think of... um, So Adam and Eve... The, the problem that happened was this movement, this shutting down, closing the heart, I'm not open to the gift. The solution, the redemption, has to begin with an, an amazing act of openness to the gift, an openness, a trust. So who is the first person in salvation history that God begins to untwist this closeness? Who's the first figure? Mary. Now she's later down the road. Oh, you mean Abraham. like? Old Testament. Who said it? Abraham. Abraham. Think of the Eucharistic prayer. Abraham, our father in faith. Right? Abraham, our father in faith. Right? What did he do? God comes to him and get, makes these wild promises. He's 100 billion years old. I don't know how old he is. He's pretty old. He's pretty old when God comes to him, right? Him and his wife, Sarai, they're childless, and God makes these wild promises. You're going to become the father of multitudes, great nation. This is one of the details I just discovered this year that I never saw before when he says, Abraham, go outside your tent, look up to the sky, and count the stars if you can. Anybody know what time of day it is when he's asking him to do this? It's not night. (laughs) It's daytime. It is daytime when he has him do this, which is mind-blowing because what does Abraham know about the stars? at that time of day. They're there, but he can't what? He can't see them. Right? So, the solution to like, the problem begins with this act of, okay, I will open, I will open, I will open, I will open. And humanity, all throughout salvation history, all throughout the Old Testament, kind of does like, one of these, and then one of these, and one of these, and one of these, these, right? Until finally, God prepares this perfect vessel. Who, who is it in the New Testament, in the fullness of time? Mary. Mary, right? Mary, 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 right? Okay, so, back to Genesis. If faith is the openness, fear is the closeness. All right, so we have this. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. I was afraid... Adam said, because I was naked and I hid myself. Now look, this is how we need to pray into this. So the fall happens, they grasp, they cover, and the immediate first movement is they hide. They hide, right? That's the enemy's whisper always, always. As we experience our shame, the enemy says, the way that you deal with that is you hide it. You hide. So they dive into the bushes. They make fig leaf aprons. They cover their bodies. And God comes into the garden. He asks the question, Adam, where are you? Where are you? And you have to know there's no like tone given in the scriptures, there's no like emoji in like the original Hebrew, right? So, like, it's the Holy Spirit who provides the tonality that's really important because it's not God saying, Adam, where are you? Like he's not like Jack Nicholas and Jack Nicholson in uh, The Shining, like like slamming down the door, like here's Johnny, right? That's like, that's not who God is in the garden. It's this heartbroken father. It's Adam, where are you? Where are you? Like we were, you we were right here. You were right here. Like where'd you go? Like have you ever been in a conversation with somebody, and um, like in the very midst of the conversation? Like, they, they they go out. <laughs> they suddenly, like, tone out. And you can see that, like, they they just went somewhere else. And they just say, like, hey, like, where are you right now? Like, where would you go? Like, that's just what happened in in the fall, in the garden. Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? And Adam's response, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. See, nakedness, it used to reveal... It once revealed participation, if you will, in holiness and grace. Now nakedness reveals their loss, right? Nakedness was like the naked bodies of Adam and Eve were the, like the full revelation of the person. The person was fully revealed through and with and in the body. Right? Like this is a weird thing. We've we've experienced this like kind of in a highlighted way the last two years with masks, right? We've all kind of had a heightened awareness of how important the face is. Right? I used to be very convinced that like you need to see someone's eyes to really know their face. But I can tell you now, it's like it's like this part I feel like that we really need. Because I just, you know, I'm a year at my parish, I learn my people, like their names and their like from here up for like the first seven months. And it's only the last few months that I've gotten to see the rest of their face. And I've had to relearn who they are, right? The face is the revelation of the person. It's, it's like, it's the revelation of the person. This is gonna sound weird, but imagine, if you will, like the, like before the fall, the body's capacity, the body was, the whole body was able to do what the face can do now. Let me say that again. Like The face now reveals the person. Before the fall, the entire body was able to do what the face does now. Like the whole person was communicated through the body, right? Now we no longer see the body as a revelation of the person and a divine gift, right? I love this from John Paul II. He says, the body and gender difference are now blamed. They're now blamed for the rupture caused by sin. But he says, this is a cover-up, almost an excuse not to face the disorder of the heart. Right? We think somehow that like, the problem is, there, is the nakedness. It's the body. It's the flesh. That's the problem. That's the evil. That's where, all the, that's where all the bad stuff is. No, that's not the problem. That's symptomatic of the problem. Right? Something's gone terribly wrong. You want evidence of this. Notice how every single one of us right now is wearing clothes. It's pretty great, right? It's a pretty good thing. Because right? <laughs> like, like if all of a sudden there was a genie who just snapped his fingers and like, Four people in this room were suddenly naked, at random. <laughs> like it would be like, ah, right? Like it'd be it be a horrifying thing. It'd be a very scary thing. All of a sudden, like the thought of suddenly being naked, because we sense deeply how suddenly being exposed would be horrible. We we sense deeply this this thought that like I cannot be exposed like that. I do not I do not deserve to be exposed like that. I'm not a person that needs to be exposed. I'm a a person that gets to be revealed in love, right? So this is where John Paul II starts bringing in the conversation about shame, and this is important for us. So look at... um, uh, Where is the shame quote? Wish I had them numbered right. Page nine. Page nine. Shame touches on that's oh there yeah yeah yeah, so quote number one: man alienated from original sin. Thank you. All right. Shame touches men and women, man man and woman at their deepest level, and seems to shake the very foundations of their existence. From this moment on, shame will cause a fundamental disquiet in the whole of human existence. Look at the next quote. Shame is a natural form of self-defense for the person against the danger of descending or being pushed into the position of an object for sexual use. So like part of the experience of shame is knowing that like were I to be exposed there's a chance that I wouldn't be met with love in my nakedness, I would be met with use and like as a person I'm not meant to be used, I'm meant to be loved, right? Like the proper ordering of things is that we love people and use things. In this modern world because of the fall we love things and use People. We use people, right? So shame has this twofold role. It 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 reveals the great dignity we have and also protects us from like being used, from being used, which is why we veil our bodies, which is why modesty is important, right? We don't veil things because they're bad and ugly and awful and evil. We veil things that are beautiful and are like it heightens the reality of how good and noble the thing is right? Think about a a church. In the tabernacle, there is traditionally a curtain. As you open the door, there's a curtain there, a veil there, right? Think of the temple in Jerusalem. There was a veil that separated in the Holy of Holies, right? Brides walking down the aisles traditionally are wearing what? Veils because they are so ugly. No, (laughs) because they are so beautiful and so good, right? They're so good. Okay, so Continuing Genesis, to the woman God said, in pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall dominate you. Genesis 3.16. We can look at all of human history in some ways. This is under an apparent inequality. Just just keep going out. Okay. Not worried about you. The whole of human history, John Paul II says, can be marked, has been marked by various forms of uh, male dominance. Right? That God made masculinity different than femininity. He made men very different than women, and women very different than men. And our giftedness was meant to be complementary for each other. Um, properly ordered, our masculinity is meant to be at the service of femininity, and femininity at the service of all of humanity. Um, but in the fallen world, the giftedness of protection becomes a, a curse of predation in some ways. Right, so masculine dominance um, has been a problem throughout all of human history, right? Because the way that God has made the man—I mean, just think about the way that our bodies are designed. Like you think about um, uh, back to Marvel superhero comics, right? Think about like comic book characters, right? So mass male bodies are can be drawn with these angular, sharp, outward lines. Right? There's an outwardness towards masculinity. Whereas femininity, there are these curved, inward-facing lines, Right inward-facing. In moments of fight or flight, the stress hormone within men's bodies and women's bodies do different things. For a man, when the fight or flight response happens, cortisol pushes blood to a man's extremities, to his hands, to his arms, to his feet. Why? That if he should need to fight and defend something, he has the blood there to do it. In moments of fight or flight, those sorts of things in women's bodies, it pushes blood from the extremities into the core, specifically towards the abdomen, towards the womb, in order to preserve life, should there be life there, right? There's a difference. The skin on men's backs is on average, and for the most part, way thicker than on women's bodies. Because men, before we had shields and armor, our bodies literally had to be physical shields, if it needed to be. These are real things. There's a reason why nature makes statistically more men than women. Because our cargo is not as precious as your cargo when it comes to the reproduction of the species. God made us to be the lamb sacrifice. But in this fallen world, it doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen that way. Women's genius, as John Paul II calls it, is her receptivity, right? That women, the way that your bodies and souls are constructed, like God has put into your bodies, I mean, this is so holy and so beautiful. He's put into your bodies an empty space that's meant to house another, right? There's a place in you, there's an organ that you have that doesn't exist for you. <laughs> it exists for another. Like built into the architecture of femininity is this truth that says I am meant to open to receive, conceive, nurture and bring forth life. I'm meant to be open to the to welcome the concrete other. Right? That's what a woman's body says. And what a woman what a woman is, John Paul II says, in her physicality, she's a sign of all of humanity. She's a sign of all of humanity. Because just like in the marital embrace, it's the bridal posture to open, to receive the gift. Remember, what is the definition of faith? Openness to receive the gift. So the bride is the one who opens to receive the gift, who conceives the gift, who nurtures the gift, and brings forth new life, right? Every person... Man, woman, every person, young and old, God is the bridegroom, and we are the bride. God is the bridegroom, we are the bride. And our mission as humanity, as church, is to open to receive the gift of faith, of life, of redemption, of grace, of all of it. This is why the enemy hates women. Like, we've heard this phrase, like, the war on women... The war on women didn't start, like, politically decades ago or centuries ago. The war on women began in the heart of Lucifer, who, like, before the material universe was created, God gave him a semblance of the plan that he would enact, that God would create this universe, that in the fullness of time he would create these human creatures, and one of them would be so holy and so blessed above all to receive in her womb the creator himself. Lucifer hates Women, because women are the sign of what we are called to be. He hates receptivity. He hates receptivity. He wants to shut down receptivity. He doesn't want us to be open. Because without openness, without vulnerability, there is no life. He wants to turn wombs into tombs, which is why abortion is the sacrament of the enemy. It's the anti-sacrament of the enemy. I know this is heavy. Are you still good? Are we still good? Okay, we're good. All right. The man ought to have been, look at the bottom of page nine. The man ought to have been from the beginning the guardian of the receptivity of the gift and of its true balance. Underline that. Those of you who work with young men, Just have them reflect on that right there. The guardian of the receptivity of the gift and of its true balance. Although maintaining the balance of the gift seems to be something entrusted to both, the man has a special responsibility as if it depended more on him whether the balance is kept or violated or even, if it has already been violated, reestablished. So a number of years ago, um, before I was ordained, there was a young man in our the youth group at st mary 's who um, I ended up being his confirmation sponsor. but I was on retreat. we were praying with the teens Saturday night of retreat and uh, and he came up to me he was a junior at this point and was sharing about how he and his girlfriend how he had as he said he 's like we 've made we 've made a lot of mistakes and he just was sharing it and just kind of going into um, just some of the ways that he 's felt like he had failed and Anyway, it was a beautiful time of prayer. I prayed over him. It was awesome, and, and retreat ended. And then uh, I wrote him a little note just saying how proud I was of him for all the things he had shared and did and wanted to change. And like a few weeks later, I got a note back from him, which doesn't happen, right? Um, it's on this little green card. I still have it in my breviary. one of my breviaries back at the seminary, or at the rectory. And remember, he wrote in that card, he said, "Yeah, we've, we've made a lot of mistakes." Um, in our relationship and he says we've both been at fault but he said but I feel like it's my responsibility to correct that and I just want to be better for her and like right there talk about the echo of the beginning right like this awesome young man knew that yeah while we have shared responsibility like in some ways the burden falls to me like to correct this to be the guardian of her receptivity to be the guardian of her receptivity. I just I just love that so much. Alright, so back to the Sermon on the Mount. Christ is talking about whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery within her it with, with with her in his heart. So Christ comes along, right? And in order to shame us, condemn us, and give us more rules in order to cope, right? Amen. No? Okay, good. I just want to make sure we're on the same page. You're paying attention? Okay, cool. Uh, no, wrong. He invites us, he invites his listeners to enter into the painful process of purification, the painful transformation, and it begins, again, with those challenging words. So we have Jesus, uh, that's not Jesus, that's Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount, preaching, and he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say, whoever commits, whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery within her heart. Is Jesus not like... Asking us to do something impossible? Like, is this not what Jesus is asking us to do? Right? Like, like, I just, this is beyond me. This is beyond me. Right? This seems impossible. This seems far beyond us. No. Jesus is not asking us to do something impossible. What he's doing, his words specifically, they're taking us to the radical depths of what the law was always pointing to. His words are taking us to the radical depths. Radical from the Latin word radix, which means to the root. Right? Think of like radish. Where do radishes grow? In the ground, right? Radix, radical. He's taking us to the radical depths of what the law was always pointing to. I'm going to share a few other quotes that are not in your, in your, um, uh, in your uh, workbook. But St. Augustine, the law was given that grace might be sought and grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. Right. Like part of the reason St. Augustine, and the church Fathers, saw that God gave the law in the first place was not so that we could crush it and be like, we got this. We nailed it. We can do all these laws. Right. Part of the reason why God gave the law was so that we would discover we can't do this. Like we can't keep these laws. We can't do this. And God's like, perfect. Because now I can give you grace so that you can actually fulfill the law, fulfill the law. Look at, um, uh, da, 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 da. look back on page 8 under whoever looks to desire quote number 1. The Sermon on the Mount makes the transfer or shift of the meaning of adultery from, from the body to the heart. So again, a radical interiorization. It's not just an external thing. It's an interior transformation. The look, John Paul II says, expresses what is in the heart and Christ wants to show that man looks in conformity with what he is. And what you are, human person, is a unique, unrepeatable, irreplaceable image of God whose origin is love, whose destiny is love. You are made for love, and you're meant to look upon each other with love. Like In, specific, in particular, my dear sisters, you know the difference between being looked at and being seen. Amen? Right? There's a big difference. You're not meant to be looked at. You're meant to be seen. And God is saying, Jesus is saying, I can actually transform your heart in such a way that you see people, like really see them. Like you probably have known some of these people, some of these incredibly holy people. I'm thinking of Father Bob McCreary. Jen, you you just witness for a second. What is it like to be looked at or seen by Father Bob? See, right there. Uh, yeah, I, uh, the way he looks at everybody. I remember feeling so loved by him, just having him look at me. But then as I talk to other people, I'm like, oh, he makes everybody. <laughs> yeah. The radical transformation. Look at quote number two there Adultery in the heart is not committed only because the man looks in this way at a woman. Who is not his wife, but pre- 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 but precisely because he looks in this way at a woman, like the problem is not that you're he's the, that you're looking at someone who you're not married to in a lustful way, it's that you're looking in a lustful way. It doesn't matter if you're looking at your spouse or not, right? Even if he were to look in this way at his wife, or even if she were to look in this way at her husband, he or she would commit the same adultery in the heart. This was. Huge And like bombshell shocking for the church when John Paul II said this. Like, what do you mean you can be like committing adultery with your spouse? Like against your spouse, looking at her in a lustful way, looking at him in a lustful way. Isn't that, isn't that what marriage is for after all, right? Like you got you to gotta get an outlet somewhere, right? Like no, no. He's saying like not even your wife, not even your husband, are you supposed to be looking at in a way that I want to use you, consume you, take you for myself. Your spouse is supposed to be the person, here is my body given for you. I want to love you. I want to see you. I want to know you. I don't want to use you. I want to love you. Right? All right. So, this was just huge for John Paul II. Jesus, uh, we have St. Paul saying, um, no, Jesus says in Matthew, he says, Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And St. Paul says in Galatians, If you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. We are not under the law. So there's a big difference between ethics and ethos. I was saying this at the beginning. Like we all know the commandments, right? Ethics, right? The commandments are the ethics, the positive prescriptions, right? And in and of themselves, they do not change our hearts, right? They are just the rules. They are the bottom line. Like if you want to be human, if you want to be at least decent, you've got to at least be doing this, Christ did not come to give us more rules, he came to transform our ethos, he came to transform our hearts so that we no longer needed the rules. Right? Like it's the difference between anybody in here playing an instrument? What do you play? Uh, guitar and piano. Guitar and piano. How long have you been playing guitar and piano? Um, I just play the guitar like an amateur. Okay. But for about 15 years. What about piano? Uh, I used to play that when I was younger about 10. Okay. What do you play? I play guitar, and I play piano. Okay. So, like, I'm trying to teach myself guitar, right? And, like, I just would love to be able to just, like, play and lead some worship. That's all I want to be able to do. I just want to be able to go into chapel and, like, just, I can do it like, on my own. I just I want to be able to do that. But, like, I have to, like, my hands hurt a lot when I'm trying to do these chords. I don't think my, my I think I've got too fat or meaty of hands to ever do a bar chord. I don't think it's ever going to happen in my life which is, like, sad. I can't wait for my glorified body to be able to actually play guitar. <laughs> but, um, like, I ha- it's, like, so much thinking, and I'm just constantly, like, uh, 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 and then you can't ever actually sing when you're doing that, right? Versus someone who's been doing this, internalizing, right, the ethic, if you will, the, like, the rules, the prescriptions um, of guitar playing, right? People, like, think of, like, um, uh, like, Jimi Hendrix, or think of, um, um, Uh, give me a second, Uh, John Mayer, right? These amazing virtuosos on guitar. They are not going, like, uh, uh, like, they just, like, go, right? They have so internalized the ethic, if you will, the rules of guitar that they just freely play guitar. So, like, what what John Paul II is saying is that Jesus, like, okay, You've got guitar playing and you've got this thing called life playing, right? Jesus has so come to give us the grace and power that we don't have to so much like be guided by the rules of the game of life. He's given us the grace and the power to actually transform us so that we are effortlessly living the way that we were meant to live. And we can play the game of life like we were meant to live. Does that make sense? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. great. Here's another great quote from um, another amazing woman named Mary Healy. I love this. Jesus does not just command us but empowers us He's, he doesn't just say try harder he doesn't do that nowhere in the gospel you see jesus say you just need to try harder <laughs> Like that's not a thing he gives us the grace grace is power say it with me grace is power grace is grace is power grace is power, grace is power. jesus came to plug us in if you will to the great like electric circuit of the universe called God, right? Without this power, we cannot be what we were made to be, right? So in effect, you have Christ saying, you've heard the commandment not to commit adultery, but the problem is that you still desire to commit adultery, right? So like we need to transform your heart so that you are actually led by the Spirit so that we can, like, you don't even want to do that anymore, right? You don't even want to do it anymore. Jesus can actually transform that so thoroughly, Another great quote from Mary Healy Jesus did not come just to give us a stricter moral code. Is that the best the Son of God could do for us? No, He gave us the capacity to live out the true meaning of human existence, which is to participate in God's own love. We are no longer fallen humanity ruled by lust because Christ came and died for us. We are redeemed humanity. Fallen yet redeemed, fallen yet redeemed, fallen yet redeemed. right? So so many of us, like we hear it so often in the church. I think so many of the problems we have in the church is because we think we've got to like because of how like the, the painful process of purification, because of the battle, we think we need to lower and water down the morality bar because it's just hard. We hear people say things like, "I'm only human. You can't really expect that of me." right That's not possible. Do you not know the urges and drives I have, right? You are not only human, though. You're not. Right? That's that's an inaccurate anthropology. To be human is to be infused by grace, wedded to the Holy Spirit, coming from glory, destined for glory. Like, you've got all of the angels and saints, this army of glory on your side. The enemy is just this pipsqueak who wants to frustrate you and, like, throw you off. You are not only human. You will outlive every galaxy and universe. Galaxy, right? We have one universe. This universe. You will outlive the universe. Right? To be human is to be so much more than just a fallen creature. All right, John Paul II, on the back of, uh, on the bottom of page 9. This is from, um, wait, no, page 10. So, from his encyclical letter *Veritatis Splendor*, which was his uh, encyclical on on morality, where John Paul II put to rest a lot of heretical thoughts that were kind of swirling in the church. Basically, after the Second Vatican Council, this is a very, like, broad brushstroke. Um, there was a, a wide, there was a great movement in um, Catholic morality that created all these other visions of morality because we just thought it'd be more pastoral. It's just so hard to live up to the church's vision of things. And John Paul II, in very taught to splendor, says, no. Like, unless it's anchored to the truth, that's not actually loving. The truth is transformation is possible, right? And so he's confronting this idea of, like, the concrete possibilities of man. Like, you don't actually know the concrete circumstances of men and women, husbands and wives, trying to live in the 20th century, trying to do it, right? trying to be faithful. Do you know how hard it is to raise kids? Do you know how how hard it is to have big families? Do you know how hard, the concrete possibilities? this is what John Paul II comes in and says. What are the concrete possibilities of man? And he goes, and of which man are we speaking of? Of man dominated by lust or of man redeemed by Christ? This is what is at stake, he says. The reality of Christ's redemption. Christ has redeemed us. Like, what's at stake here is, like, did Jesus on the cross actually do something for us? That thing that happened on Calvary 2,000 years ago, like, does that make a difference? Like, is that, is that like, did he do anything worthwhile for us? Because if we say, like, the concrete possibilities meant we can't really be redeemed, then we're saying that Christ's death on the cross meant nothing. What's at stake? The reality of Christ's redemption. Christ has redeemed us. That word redeem means like to regain, to buy back. Christ has bought back for us. He has regained the original meaning of our human embodiment. And he's given us the grace, the power of the Holy Spirit to actually live the deepest truth and meaning of what that means to be human. He's plugged us into the power grid, right? JP2 continues. This means... He has given us the possibility of realizing the entire truth of our being. He has set our freedom free from the domination of concupiscence. Right? Concupiscence is the is how our intellects and wills are bent. Right? Bent away from the truth, bent away from the good. He has set our freedom free from the domination of concupiscence. And if redeemed man, this is great, if redeemed man still sins, anybody here still sin? Okay, so just Jen and I. Cool, all right. (laughs) If redeemed man still sins, this is not due to an imperfection of Christ's redemptive act, but to man's will to not avail himself of the grace which flows from that act. Please underline that, star that, whatever you got to do. God's command is, of course, proportioned to man's capabilities but to the capabilities of the man to whom the Holy Spirit has been given. right? You are not merely human. You are not merely human. A human being that's been given the Holy Spirit is capable of unbelievable things. We're going to land the plane here, um, and let's end in prayer. Maybe we can open up for just a few questions. Yeah? All right. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus Christ, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, you have come into our brokenness, into our human story not to condemn us, not to point a finger at us, but to empower us, to call us back to the purity of our origins and to give us the grace to actually live out the deepest truth of our being as human. God, we avail ourselves again to the redemption of the cross. You have set our freedom free. May we be true saints for the glory of your kingdom. We pray all glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.